You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable and fixed blade knives and game processing kits. Now, in my bag this year, I had the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit. It comes in a very compact, handy carrying case, and one handle has the replaceable blade knife and the gutting blade. The other handle has the saw that comes with it. So, I use the saw to split the pelvis, and I use the gut hook to open up the cavity and the blade to start cutting all the stuff out, right? So uh, it makes cleaning a deer very simple, very easy, and the the knife is sharp. And uh, if you've ever had to gut a deer with a dull knife, we all know how much that sucks. So um, take a look at the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit and uh, head on over to OutdoorEdge.com and enter the discount code NATION30. That's NATION30 for 30% savings on your purchase. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up to become a Go Hunt Insider today at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of time and dollars back to fish and wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today, we are joined by Justin Bubinek, and Justin is a committee member with 2% for Conservation. And Justin and I go through really his whole kind of path and and what led him um, to where he's at now in terms of all the work he's doing for conservation. Uh, Justin grew up in the Pacific Northwest and was introduced to the outdoors at a really early age uh, through his family uh, and then found himself uh, after or during college um, down in Southern California and there 
kind of broadened his, uh, well, maybe not broadened, maybe not the right word, but expanded his his love for, for fly fishing in particular um, down there on the ocean and was in, uh, an integral part in starting the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers chapter uh, there in California uh, in his time there. Uh, Justin now resides uh, in the Denver, Colorado area um, where he is taking um, a big role in, in helping mentor and working, uh, volunteering his time with uh, the youth um, as um, a hunter's ed instructor um, and, and spending time with other organizations, helping getting them uh, introduced to fly fishing and other avenues of the outdoor uh, Justin's a great dude and we have a great conversation and I think you guys are, are really going to enjoy this. So episode 44, Justin Bubinick, enjoy everyone. Uh, before we get into today's episode though, I want to take a minute to tell you about our partners over at Stone Glacier. If you haven't already, be sure and download the Stone Glacier app. You can find that in the iTunes store or if you're using Android on Google Play and up on the app there, you can stay up to date with all the latest uh, happenings, releases, everything with Stone Glacier. Um, you know, regardless of what you're looking for in a pack, um, in some base layers, some mid layers, some outer layers, sleep systems, Stone Glacier is going to have everything that you need um, <clears throat> to get you out into the into the mountains or into the woods and, and be comfortable. And it's uh, I recently started using late last season the uh, Skyline Vinyl Harness and. Had a chance to uh, use it again this weekend doing some shed hunting, and it's amazing how light and streamlined um, this bino harness is compared to the other ones that I've used in the past. Uh, I highly suggest looking into it, um, and while you're at it, you know, check out some awesome apparel, uh, just everyday apparel that they have. Um, can't go wrong with a purchase from Stone Glacier, so check them out, stoneglacier.com. All right, joining me today, I have committee member for 2% for Conservation, Justin Bubinick. Justin, how are you, man? Doing pretty well. Just had another snowstorm out here in Denver, Colorado, but hanging in there. Yeah, we uh, we have some friends out there, and my wife was talking to uh, her friend, and she was saying that they just got absolutely pounded out there, like feet of snow, and especially kind of this, uh, well, this at this time of spring, it, it's kind of unusual to get hit that hard, especially there in Denver. Oh yeah, I feel like I feel like each time we've got a dump on us, it's gone from like 65 and sunny one day to just like absolutely blizzard conditions the next. So definitely adapting to these uh, variable weather conditions. Yes. Yeah, so, so you're in Denver now. Where are you originally from, Justin? Uh, I'm from just outside of Portland, Oregon, a little town called Happy Valley. So kind of within that Willamette Valley string, um, the suburbs of Portland. Uh, lived there. Up until I went to college, went down to Oregon State for a bit, and then actually moved to Southern California. And that's where I was for about the past decade uh, before I moved out to Denver. Okay. That's a, I mean, it's not a huge change, but I mean, you're going from the, the ocean to the mountains. So that's, I've always preferred the mountains myself. So I feel like you kind of made the right choice there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's thing. It's like growing up outside of Portland, I had the mountains about 45 minutes away, the beach about an hour away. So I had the best of both worlds. And honestly, Southern California wasn't too bad. We still had, we still had some mountains, definitely nothing like out yeah. here in the Rockies. But uh, yeah, definitely still a West Coast guy. Like sticking yeah. to the West Coast as much as possible. Yeah, there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. So yeah, I know we've been trying to connect. We tried to connect, gosh, I feel like it was 
late last year sometime, and I know we just couldn't make our schedules work and everything. So I'm excited to finally get a chance to, to sit down and talk with you. Yeah, excited to be here. Yeah, great, great. So first off, Justin, if you've listened to any of the podcasts before, especially it's, it's been a while since I've had some committee members on, but in order to kind of uh, set the scene and, and paint the picture, um, I mean, it's called the Average Conservationist Podcast. So it's, you know, ordinary people or average people doing extraordinary things in, in the field of conservation. So let's let's start off here. So tell me what it is that you do for a living, Justin. What's your day job? Uh, yeah, yeah. So my day job, I'm actually, I work for a uh, law firm. I am a real estate and land use attorney out here in Denver. And it's something that I was doing while I was back in Southern California. And that's what brought me there was actually going to law school at uh, USC down there and stuck around for a while, um, made the move out here and have been concentrating a lot more on the land use issues and things like that. So a lot of conservation easements and other uh, access issues on the pro bono side. And then on the actual bringing money in for the firm, uh, still doing a lot of uh, more corporate transactional kind of things, so a lot of contract work and stuff like that. So. Okay, right on. So was being uh, a lawyer, an attorney, was that something you always wanted to do? Or, or how did you kind of land on that? Definitely was not. I grew up in a family of engineers, all civil or construction management engineers. Um, all of them worked for a, a general contractor out there in Portland. And that was kind of my path for a long time. Uh, I definitely had a lot of family members say that I was an argumentative individual and always had to try to play devil's advocate as much as possible. Uh, so I think that that kind of made me at least explore law a bit more. But funny enough, I've never been in the inside of a courtroom to actually argue or anything like that. And it's literally just all that kind of contract drafting, that kind of work in negotiations outside the courtroom, um, which has been pretty nice because I feel like my adversarial side would probably get to me if I was actually in a courtroom with uh, a bit more passionate and uh, maybe go over my head <laughs> more than I would expect, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, no, it's... Uh... My uh, my brother in law is actually an attorney, and he works uh, like in mergers and acquisitions. Um, he's kind of a, he works he's an in house counsel for uh, for a company here in Michigan, and that's one thing he always says is like uh, you know people when they think of attorneys or lawyers they always think of like in the courtroom and you know fighting the good fight and all that. But he said it's you know a lot of times it's it's other other types of avenues that people tend to go down uh, in terms of you know practicing law. Yep. Yep. And definitely like sticking on the outside of the courtroom side that that's pretty much where I expect to be is going in house kind of like your brother or something like that. Once I get done of keeping track of every five to 10 minutes of my time at a law firm, which is kind of a regular daily chore since we work with a lot of different clients and always have to fill those hours back. Yeah. So I can imagine that. Soon, but <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that being pretty meticulous at times, you know, five, 10 minutes, 15 minutes here. And yeah, I mean, it's all billable, right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> All right, so let me ask you this, Justin. How was it that you were first introduced to the outdoors? I grew up in a very, very, very involved outdoors family. Uh, my, I guess, I wouldn't say ancestors, but generations before uh, moved out to Oregon. And uh, from the time they moved out there, they were very much into fishing, hunting, and uh, foraging. Actually, a ton of my family members all are major mushroomers is okay. one of the things that they do the most out there. Um, so I was kind of inundated it, inundated um, and immersed in it from birth, more or less. Uh, 
my mom would always tell stories of us mountain biking up the Deschutes River in Oregon. So my dad could go fishing. I'd be sitting in like a little basket in the back of the mountain bike with my head bobbing. And uh, I wasn't able to hold a rod or anything like that. But I sat on the shore watching my dad as much as possible. And as soon as I could hold a rod, I was definitely out there fishing. And uh, I was in the duck blind for the most part with my dad from the age of about six onward. Um, I didn't get my hunter education uh, until I was 11 or 12. And then from there on, I was holding a gun in the duck blind with them. We were big bird hunters, not as much uh, big game. So a lot of upland waterfowl and stuff like that. Um, and then I really got immersed into fly fishing at the age of about eight or nine. And it's kind of been all like, it's, it's been an obsession ever since, uh, something that I definitely enjoy nerding out on and, uh, have tried to keep as a part of my life even when i was li living in southern california i still belong to a bunch of different fly clubs um was able to volunteer and get some casting instruction and stuff down there um got into competitive casting and uh now that i've moved out to colorado i definitely have been getting more of the hunting side back again just picked up a uh, new pointing dog puppy, a small Munsterlander. She just turned a year old and we had our first hunting season this last year out here and um, excited for the opportunities. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, long story short, it's been a part of my life since birth. So yeah, no, I was one of those ones that was lucky. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that, <clears throat> especially kind of how you uh, describe your upbringing. It, it's, it sounds very similar to, to the way I was brought up, um, especially like fishing was kind of the first real, outdoor uh experience that i had with my dad i mean <clears throat> we grew up uh, in kind of a rural kind of, not kind of a, a pretty rural area so we had a lot of like lakes and, and things around us so I, I that was how i was brought up and then like you just mentioned um in the duck blind and a lot of uh upland and waterfowl hunting i mean we did a lot of those at an early age and i think it was from you know my dad's perspective it was uh it was a little bit easier to to be out like bird hunting where you're walking around and things like that as opposed to you know like trying to have you know a 10 12 year old kid sitting still you know in a deer stand or something like that it was just it was much easier uh, for him um and you know those are the experiences i feel like that as you get older you really kind of look back on and it just kind of it keeps that spark going uh in terms of having a love and a passion for the outdoors Definitely. I mean, and it's one of the things even as an adult and bringing in new adult hunters and stuff like that, or adult onset hunters uh, into the sport or into the recreation and uh, of hunting, I feel like upland and waterfowl is, especially upland is usually the first thing that I really try to introduce folks to just because one, it like is not gear intensive at all. Yeah. Like as long as you have a shotgun and some hiking pants and boots, you're pretty much good to go. Um, waterfowl obviously is a bit more involved, but given I have some of the materials or some of the, I guess, the actual supplies to help out uh, new hunters, it makes it a bit more approachable. But yeah, those those lack of gear intensive and those actual active moving about kind of uh, hunting experiences, I feel like get people a bit more into it from the get-go. Yeah, it's a, it's a much lower uh, barrier to entry. Um when, when it comes to like waterfowl hunting, because like you said, I mean, especially or even like upland hunting, because especially if you know someone who has a dog, right, it's just it, it's so much easier uh, to be able to get involved. And I feel like it just, it, you know, seeing 
just kind of seeing how it all plays out, especially if it's your first or second time out and you're with someone who has a well-trained dog and, and knows, you know, what to do and can talk you through everything while you're out there and, and not have to worry about, you know, being quiet or anything like that. It's, it's, uh, it's much more, uh, inviting, I guess, to, to want to try on your own, um, after that. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And that's when I grew up with a bird dog. Um, but I mean, while I was in Southern California, I didn't have a dog and I was still able to go out upland hunting to some degree, just because a lot of the cover and things like that was more that kind of desert cover where you weren't more liable to actually lose birds, which is usually my major concern. Like I'd never like to lose down game or anything like that. And that's where I think that at least with California quail or Valley quail up there, you were able to locate them pretty easily actually using quail calls and stuff and sitting there and listening. And they tend to be ones that flush pretty easily for the most part. They're nothing like late season roosters or anything like that. (laughs) Flushing a hundred yards out, they'll hold decently tight and then flush within 10 or 20 yards, which is pretty perfect for a person on foot. And as long as you're smart about your shots and not taking shots over that heavy cover where again, you'll probably lose them. Uh, yeah, I, I found it pretty exciting and still a fun experience. I think that I probably trudged a lot more miles than I would have preferred, <laughs> uh, had I had a dog and climbed a lot more hills that I would have sent the dog up. Yeah. But, uh, still a great experience at least. And still something that people can do without a dog or without a friend that has a dog for yeah. the most part. So let me ask you, how was the fly fishing scene in Southern, uh, in Southern California there? It's pretty unique. So I belong to a couple of fly clubs down there. I'll give them a shout out. Pasadena Casting Club was uh, where I really got my start with uh, nonprofit board service. So I actually served on the board down there and had a few members introduce me to the competitive casting. And then uh, Southern Sierra Fly Fishers is another one, which uh, was located in an area in the Southern Sierra called Kernville. So okay. there's a there's actually a great watershed up there called the Kern Watershed um, that is the actual native waters of a number of different uh, subspecies of rainbow trout, um, including the California golden trout, the little Kern golden trout, the Kern River rainbow, and things like that. So definitely that was maybe a two-hour drive from L.A. north. Okay. So still within like a day trip distance. Um, and that was kind of your traditional mountain stream, desert stream kind of thing that I was used to. But then I got introduced to uh, surf fly fishing. So actually going down onto the beach with a heavier, like seven, eight weight and um, using a sinking line and casting out, literally standing in and casting out into the surf uh, to fish for things like surf perch, corbina, halibut, uh, California halibut, which are a bit different than the larger Pacific halibut. But yeah, stuff like that, like definitely took over most of my time while I was down there and made for still easy escapes that I think in my first year or two that I was living down there, I just didn't even know existed. So Yeah, and I'd imagine that'd be pretty tough coming from an area um, like Portland where you had kind of everything out your back door, you know, at least in much closer proximity to Southern California where while, you know, you have the ocean there, it's just, it's kind of a, a different um uh, a different way of going about, you know, kind of the same thing, right? I mean, like you said, fly fishing in the ocean. I mean, it, that's just something that, you know, for me who fly fishes primarily, you know, streams and rivers and things like that here. I mean, that's just, that's just hard for me to kind of wrap my head around, you know, chucking. Yeah. I don't know if you're throwing big flies, but throwing that sinking, you know, a sinking line out into the surf or anything like that. I mean, that just, I mean, and I think about, 
you know, how windy it always feels like it is down, you know, down by the ocean and trying to just, you know, muscle something out there against the wind. I mean, that's, that's gotta be kind of tough. Oh yeah, definitely. And that's where I think that a lot of the casting instruction came in handy and the whole chuck and duck technique (laughs) and trying to avoid whacking yourself in the back of the head with a heavy grain line and a big old weighted fly. I definitely did that a few times as I was getting into it but yeah the cold the cold water kind of experience is definitely like what i was used to growing up there in oregon with the trout steelhead salmon all that stuff and that's definitely where i cut my teeth but at the same time i think being able to broaden my experiences has been nothing but awesome and being able to talk to people about it and stuff that just otherwise thought yeah no you're pretty much using dry flies on a little creek or stream and that is fly fishing versus talking about like even deep sea fishing for marlin and stuff like that on the fly like it's been pretty cool yeah and i'd I'd imagine it just makes you uh, a better well-rounded you know angler as well right being able to to kind of have that arsenal of of different um like tactics or, or methods to, to go about catching fish because yeah, there's, there's plenty of different ways to, to go about that and to approach the scenario. Definitely. Definitely. And again, casting that real heavy line definitely helped with casting like a nice light floating line while I was back on the streams. It felt like I was casting nothing. So, uh... <laughs> so <clears throat> what, now, when you said you, you grew up and you were kind of on the banks, you know, with your dad, was he always fly fishing too? I mean, is that really what kind no. of... No. Okay. Yeah. So actually, like, my dad was not a big fly fisherman. He uh, did a lot of gear fishing for the most part. So on the Deschutes, we'd always be fishing for steelhead, for the summer run steelhead. And he'd typically be running what they called side planers, um, which are kind of like planer boards, I guess would be the closest thing, like okay. in the Midwest, but they yeah. use the river. They use the river current instead to actually get the plug is what would be behind it out into the middle of the current and out into the middle of the river. Um, is the Deschutes is actually one of those rivers that you cannot fish from any kind of a floating vessel. Your okay. feet have to be on, uh, the river bottom or on the shore to actually be able to fish. Um, so they use that tactic. And then, uh, my dad really introduced me to fly fishing while we went up to a hiking lake that my, great-grandfather actually used to backpack into i mean back in the 30s and 40s um he'd backpack in about 20 or so miles to this one high mountain lake and by the time i was a young kid it was only a three mile hike (laughs) with the (laughs) building of new roadways i still found definitely reason to complain Uh, but my dad would like take me up there uh we'd bring inflatable rafts and i would more or less kind of be tucked between his legs with a fly rod out the back dragging mosquito patterns and caddises and watching like the brook trout come out and come up and just smash it uh so not your like kind of traditional dry fly fishing by any means but at that point my dad didn't know what a wet fly was didn't yeah. know that there were flies that went under the surface and i think after that experience i just got hooked i ended up going to a few fly fishing camps and bought all the books and did all the reading i possibly could and i think i ended up probably outdoing my dad in casting and catching with fly fishing within a couple of years uh, to his dismay. But (laughs) nowadays it's more or less we go out together and I'm trying to show him new techniques and stuff like that. And it's been a cool experience for sure, but thankful for at least the introduction from him. (laughs) Yeah. You know, 
and, and I find with, with fly fishing is it's one of those things that you, once you get a little taste of it, like you just kind of bombard and cannonball into, into, you know, all the different realms of, of fly fishing, because, you know, I think about when I was first introduced to fly fishing, it was through my dad and he had gotten into it and I'm not even sure how he did, but he was, uh, he had a very like obsessive, uh, personality. So when he got into any type of activity, you know, he, he just went all in. I mean, I remember one winter he, uh, he built a drift boat in our garage, like got the blueprints and, and just would spend, you know, hours out there in the cold. Cause our, 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 uh, garage wasn't heated at the time and the epoxy and painting it and, you know, the whole nine yards. And he spent, you know, countless hours tying flies and this and that. So it's, it's cool. And I, I like to hear other people that kind of, you know, cascade into it you know the same way yeah that that was definitely me i'm definitely like kind of one of those obsessive folks and yeah i started fly tying when i was like 10 or something like that and have tried to kept keep it up ever since but it's still one of those things i i feel like i can never find enough time for it so tying the simple flies and stuff is as much as i try to do and then i'll usually buy some of the more complicated flies just because I feel like my fingers have gotten a lot fatter from when I was <laughs> a little 11-year-old. I feel like I was able to have a lot more finesse and skill back then. And uh, my eyes are still okay, but having to tie something on a little size 24 hook uh, is oh, not yeah. going to be happening anytime no. soon. <laughs> and I will say kudos to you too, because I mean, that's that's something, you know, tying flies, like that takes patience and, you know, you have to be very um, precise with, with what you're doing, or at least you, you try to be right to, to mimic, you know, whatever it is that you're tying. So kudos to you for being able to do that at such a young age and sticking to it. (laughs) Thanks. And yeah, I mean, it's one of the cool things when you do some bird hunting and stuff like that, being able to collect the feathers that they then actually use to tie the flies. Like that's something that really hooked me hundred percent. And that's kind of what I still do is I'm willing to tie flies with feathers from the birds and fur from the animals that I harvest and stuff. And I think that just adds really to kind of that complete full circle immersiveness that I feel in my hunting and fishing endeavors. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. So it it sounds like, you know, between fly fishing and then bird hunting, those are kind of your two really big passions in terms of the outdoors. So what is it, I guess, and you kind of already touched on it, but what is it about those two things specifically that you just, you can't get enough of that you really just love? I mean, I think that with fly fishing, it's especially just the fact that every time that I'm on the river or on the stream or on the lake or on the ocean, it's different. Like I'm able to kind of adapt my experience to what I'm looking for in any given day, whether it's going out with a bunch of friends and just kind of like shooting crap and fly fishing and taking it easy. Like that's great. Um, I've done competitions to like kind of fuel my competitive spirit and stuff and then just being able to pick and choose, like even what technique I'm using, what river I'm going to, like, and how it's kind of just a full year, all-encompassing, like recreational pursuit. Like, I think that's what I love. I mean, I'll even go out there while things are getting icy and you're standing on an ice shelf still fishing the South Platte or something like that. Um, and then I'd say bird hunting. I think the thing that hooked me initially was that involvement with the canine companions and seeing them work and being able to train them and bring them in um, as a part of the family. I think that's something that hooked me very much right from the get-go. I also, again, love the fact that the seasons, at least for various fowl, like extends over, 
I'd probably say six months, depending on yeah. where you're at, at least. Um, so that's always nice being able to have that time. And I think that, I think that it just seems more active as well. Even when you're sitting in a duck blind, you're getting more action. You're seeing things come in. Um, very much ADHD. Where I need to, <laughs> I sitting in, sitting in a tree stand for like eight hours straight. Like that's not going to be my thing ever. So, um, I'm the type of type of person when I can incorporate exercise and activity into my recreational pursuits, I'll definitely do it. And that's something that upland bird hunting has definitely given. Yeah, no, you, I, I definitely feel you on the, uh, having a hard time sitting still. I mean, as far as I guess, you know, big game is concerned. I mean, whitetail is, is the one that I practice most, um, you know, just here in Michigan. And, you know, even though I've been whitetail hunting for a long time, I mean, I still have time. Like once I hit like that four hour mark, I get real fidgety. I gotta, you know, and I know you're supposed to like, everyone's like, just you know, play, be as still as possible, but you know, I'll kind of look around and, you know, I don't see anything. So it's like, stand up, stretch your legs. You know, I just, I have a hard time with it, man. And, and that's, I mean, it is what it is, but no, I can definitely appreciate the, uh, the, uh, the activity and everything that comes with, you know, upland hunting and, and waterfowl hunting, even though it's, you know, you're kind of in a blind, so to speak, but you know, you can, you can talk, you can move around. You don't feel like in, usually you're not by yourself. You know, you've got some other people oh, yeah. with you. Definitely. That camaraderie is awesome. And I mean, I'm excited to get into Western big game hunting. That's something that like, again, I didn't do growing up, but I've had more and more friends um, try to introduce me to it. And I think that, again, I think I'll be hiking enough. I think I'll be trying to get into the backcountry enough that'll make it at least worthwhile. Sure, there'll be plenty of sitting in glass and stuff like that, but it does feel definitely different than the kind of traditional Eastern whitetail or Midwest whitetail um, kind of experience. Yeah, and I like what you said about <clears throat> upland hunting and the 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 canine companion, uh, because that's that, that that's kind of hard to to really explain to someone who has never hunted with a dog, right? I mean, lots of people have dogs and you know family pets, and and that's great. And I mean, we have one, and I actually just um, about a week and a half ago bought a uh, a lab that I intend to to train to to do some upland hunting and some waterfowl hunting. But it's just, it's a different connection, right? I mean, oh yeah, you know, I mean, they know it, you know it. I mean, you know, I recall growing up with, with the lab that we had that we would waterfall hunt with. Like, as soon as my dad would like, you know, put his gun in his case or he'd start to get decoys around or anything like that. I mean, the dog just, it, it knows, right? And it's it's yep. just such a cool thing to see. And it, it, it kind of gives you this, this bond and this connection that you, you don't really find anywhere else. Definitely. Definitely. And that's like, and that's where I've been like kind of even researching things like balconing and stuff like that, like falconry, like where you're able to incorporate, you're using a dog, you're using the falcon and like having that whole partnership, uh, seems pretty awesome as well. I've been following a few folks on Instagram, just watching their pursuits and it's incredible to watch. And yeah, bringing in that, those animal companions, whether it's a horse, whether it's a dog, whether it's a bird, like it's pretty cool feeling that connection and something that, I think definitely goes beyond your typical household pet kind of connection. Yeah. I mean, falconry, I mean, that's, that's next level stuff right there, man. I mean, that's, oh, that's yeah. stuff that yeah. I haven't even, I mean, I'm familiar with it enough to know what it is, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the extent of my knowledge on it. Yep. So I want to shift, uh, shift gears here a bit and talk about, uh, what you're doing with 2% for conservation. So kind of tell me what, uh, being a committee member entails. Yeah, so uh, I joined back when I was in Southern California and 
really being a committee member entails, you more or less kind of have your region or your focus area. Um, and I know that 2% looks for members that are heavily involved with conservation groups and uh, has that level of, level of involvement. They're able to help these potential 2% business members for folks that know who those are that are dedicating um, their time and money to the conservation efforts and trying to connect them with opportunities where they're able to give their time um, more than anything. I don't focus on the money side so much, yeah. but trying to connect them with these nonprofit groups where they can set up volunteer activities, where they can participate in events they already have planned and uh, really just more or less being a sounding board and that kind of local connection um, as somebody that's already immersed into the nonprofit side of things. Yeah. So how was it that you first learned about 2%? I had actually met Jared uh, Frazier back at one of our recent uh, backcountry hunters and angler rendezvous that was in Boise. Um, so that's where I first was introduced to him by a few uh, mutual friends and stayed in contact. And I know that I showed interest at least in becoming a committee member just because I felt like it was a good way to stay involved outside of my nonprofits I'm already involved in. So we can really be bringing in that kind of business perspective and I mean that honestly are an important part of conservation because that is where a lot of these grants and all the money really lies uh, to be bringing in. So that's how I really got involved. Yeah. <clears throat> so how, how long have you been a committee member for? I think that I'm going on two years now. So I started in Southern California and then uh, transitioned over here to Denver and have been trying to get kind of reimmersed into the nonprofit scene out here. Obviously, I was involved with some of the more national nonprofits like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Trout Unlimited, Ducks Unlimited, and stuff like that. Um, but getting more immersed into the local chapters and connecting with groups that are more locally focused uh, has been kind of tough again with COVID. Yeah. But uh, hope, hoping that I'm earning my keep uh, in. <laughs> keeping the business connections out here as well and trying to build up the nonprofit community and my own network. Yeah. Now, have you found as, as you've gotten more involved in conservation that you're, you're dealing more with like the local uh, organizations that you said, or are you still kind of working on, you know, working with some of the more larger national organizations? I really feel like I try to get as much of a mix as possible. Um, I have definitely been trying to focus more on the conservation groups that put a heavy focus on education, mm -hmm. just because that's really where my interests lie the most. I, I can go ahead and be like a uh, armchair biologist, I guess, but I am not trained in biology or wildlife conservation, so I don't have much add to give there. I obviously have my legal skills that can only go so far, but I absolutely love teaching new folks and especially non-traditional hunters and anglers and trying to get them more involved because i mean i know that so many people stand by this statement but i mean the more voices we have there in the field and on the water for our wildlife and lands i think that that's such a major part of the conservation efforts and yeah something that i definitely enjoy and put my biggest uh put my most of my time and most of my efforts behind. Yeah. And I think that that's such a, an important area. And sometimes it, it's, it can be kind of criminally overlooked is the, the mentor side and the teaching side of things, because I feel like there's, you know, especially for, you know, the, the, what people consider adult onset hunters, right? I mean, they, 
whether they never grew up with it or they did it when they were young and then just for whatever reason just stopped doing it, right? School, work, life, whatever the case is. And to get back in, regardless of you know what activity you want to be involved in, can be very tough, right? It can be a bit um, overwhelming. It can be a bit scary because you know, you're trying to introduce yourself or essentially, you know, make friends with, with other adults that, you know, you might not necessarily have a real connection with, uh, from the get go. So there's, there's a lot of kind of barriers to overcome to, to first get back into it. And then when you look at it from, you know, just our, the youth from the younger generation that, that have taken an interest or that want to learn, I think that, that teaching them and exposing them to, you know, as much as possible is huge because it instills this confidence in them that, you know, they're going to be able to do it by themselves, you know, for a long period of time. Oh, yeah. And that and that's the thing. It's like so much of that confidence, too, like I feel like just goes into even life outside of the outdoors and stuff like Absolutely. that. Like, like you're able to provide for yourself, be able to go out there and uh, and really be able to endure Mother Nature, I feel like is such an empowering thing to experience and I feel like so many of the folks that I worked with like in Los Angeles and stuff just never had that exposure like right. the fact that they may have been to a park or something like that but I mean for the most part these people have never seen snow and yeah. have never actually held a fishing rod in their hand or or they don't have the means to be able to actually get the equipment to do it so having these conservation groups that are focused on the education and being able to empower folks and provide at least some gear and that level of education that makes them comfortable enough to go out and do it on their own, I feel like is so important because I mean, I, again, I grew up with a family that hunted and fished, but I did not have friends that hunted and fished growing yeah, okay. up. Like I, it was something I only did with my family members. My high school had a few like people that hunted and fished, but for the most part, it just wasn't something that was commonly done within my community. And so even once I went off to, uh, went off to undergraduate and then law school, and especially in law school, I felt like that was something that in the Los Angeles area and with the <laughs> groups that I kind of tread with outside of the outdoors, it was just so heavily either frowned upon or just something that was so foreign to them. Uh, they'd never even experienced it or know anybody that actually does it. So, yeah. And you know, it's, it's funny and kind of touching on what you said there, like as you get older in life and I think what kind of triggers that wanting to mentor, um, you know, mentor the youth or mentor other hunters or bring them into the fold. I think a lot of that, at least for me personally, you have to kind of let me know how you feel is that you start to think back on, you know, all the great memories, you know, that you have as a kid and, you know, all the time that you spent outdoors. I mean, I talked about this with another guest on a while ago. It's, you know, when you think back when you're in your 30s and in your 40s, you know, you don't think back, you don't think back about, you know, playing video games or that movie that you saw, right? You think about the camping trip, you know, the fishing trip, you know, whatever the case is, you know, that hike that you guys went on and saw this beautiful sunset or sunrise or whatever it is. And, you know, that's, you want to be able to give that back to people and have them experience it because it's, it's those things that are going to kind of potentially change your whole outlook on life. Oh yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, I, I still have etched in my mind as a little like 12, 13 year old catching my first steelhead on a swung fly that I tied myself. And it's still one of the, like, one of the most like impactful memories that has stuck with me, uh, through all these years. And I think just trying to 
really replicate that experience for others has been so much more rewarding and so much more enjoyable than if I was just to keep replicating it myself um, without getting others out there or without having that kind of shared experience. Because, I mean, as with any pursuit, for the most part, that shared experience with others, I feel like really is what kind of brings it home and what's ma what makes everything worthwhile. So again, as I've met more folks within the outdoor community, it's just, it's made me enjoy it a lot more, um, whether or not they're seasoned, whether or not they know more than me, whether or not I have something to learn from them or they have something to learn from me. I feel like there's always kind of that give and take and uh, value add for sure. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's very well put. So now for you personally, what are some of the, the organizations that you're um, spending your time with or that you're trying to, to give back to? Yeah. So uh, after I moved out here within like a month of moving out to Colorado, I actually signed up as a hunter ed instructor with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Awesome. Um, a government entity, but still like doing the volunteer work and definitely like a more nonprofit side of things with yeah. that actual hunter education thing. Um, so that's where I've been spending a lot of time. Uh, we kind of go through an apprentice stage and everything like that before you're actually a qualified instructor. Um, so trying to work through that has been, I've been dedicating a lot of time to that in the past year. Um, and then the Mayfly project is another new one that I just got involved with. That is a uh, nonprofit organization that actually works with foster children. You get paired up with a foster child and then they do events throughout the year to introduce them to fly fishing. Um, especially, I think that it started here actually in the Rockies, but uh, I'm excited that they actually have a program coming up here uh, starting in May that'll run throughout the summer. And uh, I'll be an instructor with that. And then previously to coming to Colorado, I was the chair of the California chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Okay. So that was, took up like 99.9% .9 of my time probably while I was out in California um, just helping put on events and try to build up the organization out there. And then, as I mentioned, I was involved with a few fly clubs where I do a lot of instructing with uh, both youth and beginners and veterans uh, through that, through those programs. Um, and I'm trying to think if there was anything else that I really do out here. I'm getting involved more with TU, Trout Unlimited, yep. out here with a lot of the river cleanups and stuff like that. Or okay. just more manual labor versus like actually me having some background in cold water biology. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, also I'm still trying to stay involved as much as I can with backcountry hunters and anglers. I just find them a great group that really is dedicated to bringing more folks and, uh, everybody into the outdoors. And then some of the more national organizations, there's a group called confluence collective, that really is focused on the diversity, equity, and inclusion portion of fly fishing, just because it is a sport that's so traditionally old white guy yeah. uh, yep. for the most part and something that only royalty yeah. <laughs> uh, really practiced back when it was getting started. Um, so trying to diversify those folks on the water and uh, trying to give some educational opportunities for folks like myself that, um, don't really know the struggles or the barriers to entry um, that some of these folks from different backgrounds are facing. Yeah. So a, a couple things there. One, uh, you mentioned um, volunteering as a hunter um, education uh, instructor. We had a, I had another guest on Cindy Stites um, late last year. Cindy. Yeah, Cindy is an absolute rock star, man. She is she's the bee's knees, man. She's great. 
And she, you know, she was, she had been doing that for a while and kind of the more we talk throughout the conversation, like the more you just kind of hear, you know, the passion that she has for, for teaching. I mean, does, is it kind of the same way for you in that regard? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And that's the thing. It's like, I feel like I love teaching and I love being able to have that back and forth with the students and stuff, especially ones that are actively engaged. I have found that uh, when it comes to some of the youth, you can tell those youth that were dragged there by their parents <laughs> uh, versus those that are actually super interested and uh, are excited about the opportunity uh, to get out there in the field. But yeah, no, I mean, I love the classroom stuff. But again, I think that one of my favorite things was actually getting folks out into the field, like and especially through my work with that country hunters and anglers. Um, that's where I was really able to do it, like give those people that first small game upland experience and stuff and seeing their reaction and helping them break down their game and give advice with cooking. Like I, I love it. Like <laughs> there's, yeah. there are a few things I would rather do. And, uh, if I had the chance, I'd always be out there with, uh, some newbie hunter instead of just going alone. But as it stands, I still enjoy going out there alone every once in a while. Sure, yeah. It tends to be a little bit less complicated, but yeah, yeah definitely, no. definitely a passion pursuit. Yeah, no, that's, that's great to hear. And then another point you touched on was, trying to uh at least in the the fly the fly fishing community there um you know the uh the the inclusion and and getting more people um involved i mean i think you know not only from a a fly fishing standpoint i think from really anywhere in the outdoors i mean that's something that we should we should really strive to do is to get you know more people um from different backgrounds involved because like you said i mean whether it's, you know, fly fishing or even, you know, kind of hunting in general, it's always kind of been this, this old white guys, um, sport, so to speak. So to, to get more people with, with different backgrounds, um, different life experiences involved, I think is huge because it's going to offer, you know, a completely different, um, perspective for the hunting and angling community as a whole. Totally. And I feel like, I mean, even just being more exposed to different groups and stuff like that, especially within the hunting community, I mean, I grew up thinking that it was just all a bunch of old white guys that had been doing it all their lives. And it was just kind of like this gentleman's club for the most part. And being able to like get more exposed to the folks that aren't just out there to whack them and stack them and see how many things they can kill that actually have that dedication to the outdoors, the wildlife and really value their uh, hunting rights or their hunting, uh, I guess, privileges really is something that gives them a greater connection to their food, to nature, and to the really natural world um, has been pretty cool and something that has made me reinvigorated my interest and my uh, support of the hunting community, whereas otherwise one that uh, I tended to try to shy away from as much as possible just because I saw people that looked like me, but not people that thought or were me, which was tough. Yeah. And you know, I, I've I've said this to a few guests before, and that I feel like we're we're kind of at this this point in the outdoor community where there's like this shift going on, right? The this older generation that we've kind of touched on is kind of on their way out, and then you have, you know, the the millennial generation. I guess it's kind of at the forefront of you know conservation of you know, uh, and with social media, you know, you're you're able to get your voice out there so much more, and it's it's interesting 
to me, and in a lot of ways, I kind of I kind of like where things are headed, you know, because there's there's more inclusion, you know, there's more voices, especially from the female side of thing that are are speaking up and wanting their voices to be heard and their experiences and, and you know what the outdoors means to them, and I'm you know I'm I'm kind of I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic really about where things are headed in the next you know five to ten years. Absolutely, and I mean, yeah, it's something that you see more and more, and depending on what groups and uh what kind of uh, people you run with, it seems like it just, it can change your perspective 100%. Yeah. All right. So tell me, Justin, what was it that kind of instilled like the conservation mindset into you? Because I, I know that, you know, as hunters and anglers, we all consider ourselves conservationists. And, and I agree with that to a degree, right? You know, I, I think that to really kind of consider yourself a conservationist, you, you need to do a bit more than just, you know, buying your tags. Um, you know, so what was it that kind of really got you down the path that you're on now with conservation? Yeah, I, I think that my family definitely had quite a bit of impact. My dad always made a point to contribute to nonprofits like Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, Quails Forever, Trout Unlimited, stuff like that growing up. And it was always a part of either my birthday present, Christmas present was my <laughs> annual membership there you go. Uh, to those things. So that was like, I kind of consider that like the bare minimum just above, like buying your tags yeah. and everything like that. Uh, but I definitely, I definitely had an interest in volunteering from a young age. I'd volunteer with groups like the Audubon Society and stuff like that. And I think that just having such a deep love for the natural world um, and for the wildlife and things like that. And I know that part of it is feeling some sort of guilt in the fact that I am depriving the national world, natural world of some of their wildlife or causing harm to wildlife in one way or another. Um, despite obviously hunters being an important part of population control and, mm -hmm. uh, proper wildlife management and everything else. I think that I still felt some sort of guilt where if I'm going to be taking from these natural resources and taking from something that is really a collectively owned resource that I want to be able to give back and ensure that these things will be there for future generations and for those people that I love to educate and to get into the outdoors. Um, having to think that my kids, grandkids, great grandkids wouldn't be able to have these same experiences that I'm having is just heartbreaking. So I think ensuring that these are things that are a lasting, a lasting resource is very important. Yeah. And that's, that's a very good way to look at it is, you know, it, it thinking about, uh, the long-term health of, you know, wildlife and, and the wild places that those, you know, wild animals live. I mean, that's, it can be kind of a, a tough thing to really wrap your head around, especially for someone who, who doesn't, you know, actively participate, right. You know, you consider yourself a conservationist, you know, you love animals, you love fish, but you know, you're, you're killing animals, you're taking away from the land. And that's, that's one of the things that, like I just mentioned, it, it's tough to really explain, but I think the further you kind of dive into the whole of, you know, conservation and, and, you know, species management is when people can kind of really start to, to put the whole picture together and understand, you know, the vital role that, you know, we as, as outdoorsmen and outdoors women play um, in making sure that, you know, uh, you know, herds are, are stable and that there's the right amount of numbers and that we're doing everything we can to, to fight diseases. Um, you know, like CWD is a, is a big disease uh, with whitetail, especially here in the Midwest. 
So to, to help, you know, biologists and conservation officers do their part uh, is huge. And I, I, I commend you for wanting to, you know, take that next step and not just wanting to continually take from the land, but give back as much as, you know, you can and to essentially, you know, right the ship and try to balance it as much as possible. Definitely. And I feel like, I mean, the indigenous folks of America, I feel like had that thing nailed down. Like they knew exactly how to manage wildlife, how to give and take from the land, how to allow the land to provide for them. And I feel like it was only a lot of us white folks coming over and start doing all the mass market hunting and stuff yeah. like that, that really started to screw things up. So I think that if those early settlers and things like that, that came out here had that same mindset and really thought about the longevity of these resources, I think that things would be different now, but I think that we're still in good shape and we're getting back on the right track. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, it, it's almost crazy to think about, you know, some of the species that are, are so commonly hunted, you know, you know, almost across the United States, whether it's elk, whether it's turkey. I mean, it's, you know, there was points where these animals were almost completely wiped off, you know, the face of the earth just because, you know, there was, there was no checks and balances in terms of, you know, how we were going about harvesting animals. So it's, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of conservation in a nutshell right there, you know? Definitely. Definitely. So of all of the different organizations and um, activities and things that you've been a part of, is there any one or two that kind of really stick out that you, I don't want to necessarily say hang your hat on, but that you look back on and that you're just super proud to have been, you know, a part of, of that community, of that organization, uh, of that specific project? Is there, is there some that you have in mind? Yeah, definitely. I think that, I think that something I'm able to definitely take the most pride in was my work in California with the uh, chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. I felt like the community that we cultivated, the people that we brought into the organization were just such good representatives of sportsmen and women um, that I'd ever met. And I think that there were definitely two events that like stood out the most. Um, the first one was called Surf Sands and Public Lands, and it actually was in San Diego, California. And that was where we really got a chance to introduce people to uh, conventional surf casting. I taught a course on fly casting in the surf, and then a buddy actually did a spear fishing clinic. Oh, nice. And then we all came together. We Everybody brought some sort of like a potluck dish, and we actually cooked up our harvest from the ocean um, at a good friend's place that's now actually becoming the chapter coordinator for California. Um, and yeah, sharing that meal, sharing the bounty of the ocean and being able to expose people to something that's right in their backyard that they otherwise overlook, um, was pretty awesome. And then the other was a, um, week, weekend long intro, uh, to hunting course that I taught up on the Kern river, as I talked about earlier. Um, it was actually like kind of a holistic thing where it's almost like a hunter education course, but kind of the next steps, these people already had their hunter education and they were looking at how to get into hunting. Um, and so I led the portion that was related to backpacking, some wilderness survival, and then I led the uh, Upland experience that we did on Sunday. And I actually got a, some people into their first quail. They did miss, they missed some shots. No quail were actually <laughs> downed, uh, but a couple of people actually uh, got their first game animal. They got rabbit or uh I think it was just rabbit for the most part okay. that most folks got and helping them break that down 
and uh, seeing the joy in their face and just like having them reach out about the experience and share the fact that they felt comfortable now going out on their own and how it really was just kind of that last step to get them into it and to get them feeling that comfortable, like that felt awesome. Like the amount of gratitude, I didn't need it, but still feeling and knowing that I was able to help empower those people and put together something that was successful um, was awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a great thing to, to witness whether you're able to be a part of it as, you know, a mentor or you're just kind of able to, you know, watch from the sidelines, so to speak um, is, is seeing that enjoyment and seeing that excitement on, on people's faces when, you know, they shoot their first animal or they catch their first fish because, you know, think back to when you were a kid or, you know, when I was a kid, I mean that just that, that joy, right? You can't, you can't explain it, you know, until you're in it and to be able to, to help someone else experience that. I mean, yeah, those, those are life-changing things for people, you know, regardless of which side you're on, whether you're, you know, the mentor or the mentee, I mean, those are, you know, those are incredible experiences. Yep. And, and yeah, I mean, it's like, it's so much of, and seeing the compassion in people still like in knowing the like gravity of them taking a life mm-hmm. and things like that, even when it is quote unquote, just a rabbit and not something big like a deer or an elk, um, having them understand and grapple with that, um, is something very cool to be a part of. And something that I feel like a lot of the folks that are involved with groups like backcountry hunters and anglers, really pay attention to and make sure that they understand and that everybody understands that this is something that can be heavy and something that everybody experiences differently mm-hmm. and not to either force like the grip and grin shot or the freaking out with excitement kind of thing yeah. um, is definitely cool. Yeah. So just a few more questions here, Justin, before I let you go, it, it, it kind of, this one's kind of a, a broad question here, but in terms of you know conservation, hunting and fishing, recruitment and participation, is there anything that you would like to see kind of differently or done differently, um, you know, going forward than than maybe how things have been done in the past? I mean, I think that one of the most important things is having instructors and individuals and mentors that don't fit that old white guy model. Yeah. Um, I love Colorado Parks and Wildlife, but definitely the majority of the instructors all fit that mold. And I think having people in that space um, that do look different, that may look like folks that we're trying to get more engaged is very important. Um, So I'd like to see that trend changing and there being some initiatives really to try to empower folks that are like already immersed into the hunting and fishing industries, um, get more involved um, with that mentor and education level. Um, and then I'd really say the other thing is, and this is more focused on the actual business side of things, but I think that just having like advertisements and the pictures and imagery, um, that we really center on, fo- uh, center on, uh, hunting and fishing really, again, just focus on more diversity, focus on trying to make folks feel like they can see themselves in that place. Like they can see themselves outside and they have people to relate to and people that um, may have had similar experiences in the past. And I think that really focusing on that, I think is the most important thing, period. Yeah, no, I think that those are two absolutely uh, imperative things that we can work towards and that can only help um, strengthen, you know, our, our outdoor community. Definitely. So one more thing here, Justin, before I let you go, I know obviously 2020 was kind of a, well, 
that would be putting him. It was it was a weird year for for everyone, you know? <laughs> sportsmen and sportswomen alike. I mean, hunts canceled, or you know, maybe more people were able to spend more time outdoors, which is awesome. But you know, this year, do you have any big trips or hunts or anything like that that you have planned that you're really looking forward to? I don't have anything too crazy. I'm excited actually to go on my first Wyoming antelope hunt. Okay. Um, so I put in for the draw on that. Um, they actually have relatively reasonably priced non-resident tags <laughs> for uh, doe doe antelope. Um, I'm not going for any kind of a trophy or anything like that. I just love to actually get that experience yeah. and enjoy it. Um, I have the upcoming uh, turkey season coming up. Um, I'm just going to be in the general tag uh, for Colorado. So I'll be getting out after the gobblers for sure. And then uh, I have a few actual fly fishing trips planned um, in Montana, in New Mexico. And then uh, of course, backcountry hunters and anglers rendezvous um, the first week of June out there in Missoula. I'll be there for that. And then, oh yeah, finally, the, the most exciting, the biggest travel experience that I'll have this year is probably going down to Mexico um to chase the marlin and oh. uh dorado on the fly down there in the ocean man how so. did you not lead with that one that one would be the one that's <laughs> most excited for me <laughs> it sounds like too much of a brag i like the local <laughs> stuff just as much as i like the actual destination there's yes. so much less stress like having your car and being local like i get nervous when i fly too far away and i'm uh kind of uh at the hands of folks that I haven't otherwise met or right, anything like right. that with our guides down there. So definitely excited for that. That's not coming up until Thanksgiving. Uh, so hopefully plenty of time for everybody to uh, get immune or not immune, get, get their vaccines. I'll yeah. get their vaccines. I won't try to pronounce it <laughs> and <laughs> no, things to settle down a bit. Yeah, no, that's, 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 to me, seems like it's going to be like one of those once in a lifetime opportunities. So I'm excited. You know, I follow you on social media, so I'm excited. You know, once the holidays come around, to see you know, hopefully you guys have some success down there and can can hook into something on the fly because that would just be you know catching something of that size and that strength and th- that that would be incredible. For sure, I'll I'll be I'll be getting a few new fly rods. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna <laughs> need something. It. 14, 14 weights probably. <laughs> it's got to feel like casting a tree trunk. It's something that size. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've cast them before, and they really are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, Justin, I really appreciate you taking some time, man. It was a blast talking to you, and, you know, good luck with with everything outdoors, with Turkey, and then obviously we'll be following along uh, on your trip down to Mexico later this year. Thanks so much, Marcus. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Take care, Justin. See ya. All right. Well, there you have it. A big thank you to Justin for hopping on the podcast with me today. Uh, I would also like to thank our partners over at Go Hunt and Stone Glacier, as well as 2% for Conservation. If you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I encourage you also to follow 2% on social media, where they're going to post only positive conservation-driven content. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, stay safe out there and conservation starts with you.